I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I think that it's kind of a true principle in life that when people warn us about something, um, our fear is directly related to how much respect we have for that person. You know, so like if a, if a four-year-old warns you that there's a monster in the closet, you're not, you're not, as, you're not as worried, right? Uh, but if you have this like friend you really respect and really trust, and they warn you there's something scary in your closet, you may be more serious about it. In this case, Jesus is warning us about something that you otherwise might not be worried about. I think that our concern for the thing Jesus warns us about in this passage should be very high. We should take this warning very seriously. We should consider it very thoughtfully. But there's one problem, and that is that Jesus' warning is a riddle. And here's Jesus, you guys. <laughs> he does this sometimes. He gives them a warning that is a riddle. It's meant to be riddled out, thought through, pondered on. We're meant to sort of absorb it you know, slowly as we think about it. It's a puzzle. So uh, this is uh, the Mark series, part 28. We're in Mark chapter 8, verse 13, and we're doing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark, trying to understand it in context, apply it into our lives simply, and uh, hopefully effectively to guard our own selves against these types of warnings. So here we are, verse 13, a spiritual danger that Jesus warns the disciples about and us. Mark eight thirteen, Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, And the leaven of Herod, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? This is interesting. Okay, so so Mark tells us, right? Hey, they get in the boat, they're crossing over, they don't have enough bread. Jesus, at that point, he warns them about the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. The disciples, because of the context, they're like, oh, it's, I don't know what he's talking about. It's probably because we don't have enough bread. And Jesus is like, you're dumb. That's not the point. You're blind. And then he explains to them, as we read on, that it's the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the, the scribes inherit, or the Pharisees inherit, excuse me. There's, I'm, I'm mixing all the gospels versions of the same story in my head together. But it's beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So what's up with leaven? Let's first just understand what, what's leaven, because in our culture, we're not really thinking about leaven too much unless you watch the Great British Baking Show, like I do. And you're thinking about things like, things like leaven. That's a, I like that show. Um, so what's up with leaven? Uh, leaven is something that, on a human, on a, on a natural level, not speaking symbolically, but just in a simple practical fashion, it causes decay that produces gas inside of dough right? And it causes the dough to rise. And we like this. I like, I like bread with leaven in it. This is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's good in bread, but symbolically, it speaks of a type of corruption in a person's life. Not always, but frequently. In the Bible, when the word leaven is used symbolically, it often is used in a negative sense. Not every single time. The Bible doesn't have to use the same things the same ways every time, but most of the time it seems to be used in a negative sense. It refers to, say, pride, when uh, we, we read that knowledge puffs up, this may be a reference to like a leavening effect, right? It's like I'm puffed up. Um, or that sin itself is, is like leaven, is like leaven. And I'll get to some scripture about that. Um, but in the Old Testament, 
Leaven was not allowed in most of the sacrifices. When they brought the sacrifices to God in the law, the Levitical law, they weren't allowed to use leaven. So this is to say that leaven's like has a symbolically negative impact because their sacrifices are all about the symbolism and representation that goes on there. Generally, it's in, it's in a negative fashion. So here's the big question that we have with that in mind. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? And that's, the, that's what we're going to focus on right now for the a large part of the study today, we're going to get into Jesus then healing a blind man, and that relates to what he just said to the disciples. Here is a cool connection that goes on. <clears throat> but what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? No, I noticed this, that I think, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think that this means there's two different leavens he's talking about. Because he doesn't say the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. He says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I think this is two different kinds of leaven that he's talking about. I think they're related, but they're different things. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But first, we'll just say what it's not. Um, it's obviously not an issue of natural food or natural leaven. That was what the 12 thought and Jesus rebukes them for. So we know that. Already Jesus has fixed that for us. It's not an issue of natural food, natural leaven. That's not the problem. It seems that Jesus, though, just doesn't explain in detail what he's talking about. And so we're left to riddle it out. Jesus does this several times in the words that we have recorded of him in the Gospels. He often says things and you're meant to puzzle it out. Now, this doesn't mean that his words are impossible to understand, but they're often sort of in, a, in a, something like a parable. Or and, the, and when we think parable, we often think of the stories Jesus told. There was a man or the kingdom of heaven is like, but he spoke parabolically or at least in riddles in other times when he says things like, if anyone doesn't come after me or comes after me, he, doesn't take, he has to take up his cross and follow me. We take up his cross. What does that mean? Now, post cross, right? We all know what this means. But you have to understand to the disciples when they first heard this, they would have been like, I mean, it would have been a long time before they would have figured out what Jesus was talking about. Take up my cross. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Or you have to, if, if you're going to come after him, you have to hate your father and mother. Jesus says this. This is one of the favorite verses that, that um, uh, I see from like atheist websites when they want to show, show how bad the Bible is, you know, and they take a verse like this from Jesus. And I'm like, well, you know, I get it. I get it. Out of context, you ignore the fact that Jesus also says, honor your father and mother. And, and that when he speaks, he speaks of hate here, he doesn't mean you're actually hating your, your mom and dad. It's a riddle. He's trying to get you to understand that he is the highest priority in your life above anyone and everyone else. But of course, because God's a priority in my life, I love my mom more. I, I, I don't think I know of any true, genuine Christians who love their parents less as a result of following Jesus. But they may have to make a choice between obeying a parent and obeying Jesus. And then that choice is clear. And even if that parent's like, hey, you hate me. You're like, think what you want. I, I can't control that, but I got to obey the Lord. Okay, so that now it becomes clear. So it's like a riddle. But the parallels, the parallels from the other uh, gospels help us understand Jesus's words here. So we're going to look at a couple of those. Um, first, we'll start with Matthew. So we read in Mark, that short, short story. Now here we get it in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 16, Matthew 16. Yeah, I'm going to flip over there. Uh, we're going to be in verses 5 through 12. We're just going to read through it and get the same passage because Matthew has more information than what we got in Mark. So it'll give us more details. Matthew 16, verse 5. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread, but Jesus, aware of this, said, 
You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Ah, beware of their teachings. Okay, so this is this is good, okay? Not such a hard riddle because we just were given an answer right there. It's not going to be that challenging to figure it out. The application will be important, but the understanding's a little bit easier because of this. So the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, what did these guys do? They taught traditions as, as if it was the commands of God. And they used their traditions to sort of downgrade the commands of God or get people to be distracted from real obedience to God through obedience to mere traditions. So they're to watch out for their teachings. Watch out for their teachings. But then we have one more verse I'll read. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Um, I'm just going to read one verse from Luke, but this gives us another element of what the leaven is. And it says, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to the disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we have it interpreted two times. Specifically, though, the interpretation we're getting is the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees. It's their teaching and their hypocrisy. That's the interpretation. Nothing mentioned about the leaven of Herod here. I think the leaven of Herod we only have mentioned in Mark. That may have a slightly different connotation to it. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what is it? It's their teaching and their hypocrisy. I think to understand this better, we just have to understand the general context for the scribes and Pharisees, which at this point, if you're you know working through the gospel market, it's like we've already seen a lot about the scribes and Pharisees. We've already looked at them a lot, so I'm not going to try to rehash all that. Let me just remind us of Matthew 23, where Jesus offers a number of woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And he's like, woe to you, woe to you. Woe, 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 over and over again. Woe meaning like bad news for you. <laughs> There's bad stuff coming your way. And he gives them a number, a number of reasons why. In Matthew 23, verse 3, he says, woe to them because they say and they do not do. They say and they do not do. So this is the hypocrisy, right? You're, you're, you're going to say you're doing something, but you're not actually doing it. They say that they're obeying God's law, but they're not really doing it. In verse 5, he says that all their works they do to be seen by men. So it's about how they look, not how they are. This is a huge issue that I think we all have to face in an internal battle in our lives. We all want to be real Christians, godly Christians. But that desire to be a godly Christian can be replaced with the desire to look like a godly Christian. And that's a, that's a big temptation, I think, for all of us. And this is where part of that warning comes up. Watch out for this leaven. It'll get into you. It'll spread through you. And it will be that desire to look godly instead of that desire to be godly. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. One is humility. The other is pride. He also goes on and talks about how they have, how they have works. They have lots of works, but they don't have service to their fellow man. Real true service. And this is in Matthew 23, verses 6 through 12. So I'm just going to read this to, to us. The warning about these particular um, hypocrites. Jesus says, they love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They love to sit in the nice places, right? They like being looked at and appreciated. 
and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Like they, like they really like it. Now, this is a good warning for those of us who, who might call ourselves pastor or deacon or whatever. And you like it when people, hey, I like when people call me pastor, pastor. Like I always, it's a red flag to me in ministry when I've had people, I'm just being honest, who they're not even ordained as a pastor, but they're serving in ministry roles and people around them just start calling them pastor because they don't know one way or the other. And when they let them call them that and they like kind of allow it, I'm like worried about them. And I'm like, oh, you like that title, do you? Does that make you feel good? You really like that title? <laughs> and I just think it's concerning to me because, hey, man, we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride. I mean, other than me, you, I really mean you, you all struggle with pride. <laughs> I obviously have already got that totally mastered. No, of course we do. We all struggle with this stuff. And so he's like, watch out for these things. And lo and behold, Jesus gets to give us some really good, bad examples. The scribes, the Pharisees. So they like being called rabbi by men. Jesus says in verse 8, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you're all brothers. Now, some would say, um, <clears throat> so then no one can call you pastor for that, because pastor is a, is a teacher, so you can't call him rabbi, can't call him. Well, uh, no, I don't think that's the case. I mean, they would still use titles like apostle. They would still use titles like elder or bishop or, you know, pastor in the New Testament times. I think the point is that you don't, you don't, um, you don't elevate people with these titles above other Christians. They're jobs within the body. They're not jobs like hierarch- hierarchically, hierarchically. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> hierarchically, is that the right word? They're not, they're not giving a hierarchy of Christians that are above others. Like here's the, here's the clergy, here's the laity, above and below. Rather, we're all just different members of the body that are equally valuable, right? And so it's, it's fine to be like, okay, okay, there's a pastor, okay, there's a worship leader, okay, there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. But they're all perfectly equal. Um, that's important. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And the shocking thing is that Jesus really, really means it. You want to be great? Well, then get a title. No. You want to be great? Like, be called by men into the, oh, join us, sit here, get recognition. It's, it's actually one of the weird things about doing this online ministry is the amount of recognition I get that I don't deserve. That's um, weird and awkward. Um, and, and, and probably a temptation in my own heart, to be honest, you know, that there's like some sort of um, hierarchy thing happening there that is not godly. That is like people, when I do talk to people, they're like, I just can't believe I get to talk to you right now on the phone. And I'm like, oh, please don't do that. You know, they just, no, I just, just a normal guy, you know, like, like actually really like it's not, that's not humility in the sense of like, oh, shucks, you're so humble, Mike. No, that's just reality. This is like reality. You know, I stub my toe and I spill my coffee on my books and stuff like it. I'm just a normal. Anyway, I remember uh, our pastor saying one time, his wife was, uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Gray, saying Denise was shopping in the, in the uh, supermarket and a lady from the church saw her there and she's quirky people sometimes, you know, they go to your church, that's cool, they're welcome. We welcome all. But she saw Denise there shopping and, uh, and said, Denise, you do your own shopping? <laughs> and I... It's just, you're just thinking like, what was going on? And I mean, that wasn't Denise's fault. She never put up airs to try to create a situation like that. That was just a weird thing people do. But the point for us is to take seriously Jesus' call 
Um, don't seek to be elevated above others. Seek to serve others. Seek to bless as many people as you can. I like the, the pyramid example for Christian leadership. So based on the words of Jesus, you know, leadership is often uh, thought wrongly as the number of people you have under you serving you, that makes you a higher leader. So you go up the pyramid and the pyramid's a lot of people on the bottom, less people on the top. Finally, you have hardly anybody at the very top. And in a sense, all these people work underneath this one guy up on the top and they're serving them. That would be the, the world's service pyramid, right? And then Jesus, it, he's like taking the pyramid, he's flipping it upside down. And he's saying, whoever's going to be serving the most, they're the ones I'm talking about, right? They're glorifying God. They're walking in humility. They're blessing the largest number of people with no concern for their name, either, either to stay unknown or to be known. It's just not a concern. Right, just serving people as much as possible. That would be our call. So the red flag or the call for us is to say, am I more about doing things to gain status or am I just truly serving God and others? Pride, even in my service, is like leaven in my life. That's the idea. Um, <clears throat> now, there's something common throughout the woes that Jesus gives in Matthew 23 as he warns about these things. And it is appearance without substance. Appearance without substance, right? You look like leaders, but you're not. You're not really serving. You know, you, you look like you're godly, but you're not. You're full of dead men's bones. You, you like to be called rabbi and teacher and all these types of things, but you're not really doing that job the way you're supposed to. So it's appearance without substance. And I think that outer religion or outer righteousness with where we have minor obedience, but not hearts after God, is exactly what the Pharisees were looking like. What do I mean by minor obedience? Well, Jesus gives an example of the Pharisees. They had minor obedience, but not a heart after God. Here's the example. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What was the outward righteousness? Well, Jesus gives examples. You tithe. You tithe on your mint and cumin. You tithe on, on your spices. You go to your, your garden and you pluck and you've got like 10 leaves of mint and you're like, one goes to the Lord. Now you might mock this, but Jesus never mocks them for doing that. What he's getting at them with is like, here you are, you're tithing the tiniest little thing, but you're not giving God righteousness from your life. You have minor obedience in some little particulars that you've turned into habits in your life. You don't have a heart that's just yielded to God, just seeking the Lord, just obeying him, going after him. That's the leaven. That's the fear. I've got a few things in my life that I do. Hey, man, I'm still doing my my daily devotionals. I should be fine, right? I make sure I go to church. I even give financially. But I'm not really loving to my family members who irritate me. Like, okay, well, hold on. That's minor obedience, but not obedience in the even bigger areas. That's exactly what that is. So how do I check myself here? Um, well, <coughs> my concern is that we often, we bring up the Pharisees, we misunderstand Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees, and we use it to criticize people who love God a lot instead of people who are fake, actually fake. In other words, we say, see, Jesus' rebuke on the Pharisees is telling me that I don't need strict obedience to God. Right? You don't need to do the little, tiny little things of obedience. God just cares about big picture stuff. And that, that's, that's kind of like 
pharisaical. It's pharisaical if you're like worried about obeying God and every little thing. You worry too much. Don't worry about it. Um, that's actually not right. And so Luke eleven forty two. Let's let's read this passage. I was mentioning mentioning it earlier. He says, "Woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, as I mentioned earlier, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are these are things you should have done without neglecting the others." Wait, Jesus wanted him to do both, right? He's like, yeah, the tithing was good, especially because they're under the Old Testament law. We're not under the, the Old Testament law. I don't think you need to tithe your mint and cumin. I'm not saying you're a rue, whatever that is. Like, I'm not saying you need to do that. Um, <clears throat> rather, Jesus, though, is not rebuking them for obeying in the little things. He's rebuking them for using the little things to ignore the fact that they were disobeying God in the big things. That, to me, that, to me, is a big deal. So what is, what is my check it's, it's, am I walking in full obedience as opposed to selective obedience that makes me feel like I'm obeying God? It's like just a real spiritual checkup for me to ask. Not to condemn yourself, but to have your eyes open to see your life. Boy, are there really obvious areas where I, I know I'm not in obedience here, and it's really big and obvious, and I should be seeing it, but I kind of closed my eyes to it a while ago. And I feel better because I'm doing X, Y, Z, and those are easier areas to obey for me, but I'm ignoring this. Love and justice, right? Loving God, total obedience. Because God is constantly looking at me. This maybe is a little freaky. He's constantly looking at me and seeing all my motives and all my actions and all my attitudes and every single tiny detail about what I'm doing. I'm amazed by his incredible grace every day. I really am. But Psalm 51.6 tells us this. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Or in Ezekiel, where he says he's going to write his law on our hearts. Right? God's like, I want your heart to be obedient to me. I want you to love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So yeah, okay, I go to church. Good, that's good. You, that's part of loving your neighbor, right? But that's only part. It's not the whole thing. There's so much more that goes on in our full obedience to God. <clears throat> So that's what I think the, the scribes and Pharisees is. Uh, minor obedience to ignore major disobedience, ultimately. I think and that's the thing we have to watch out for. Um, what about the leaven of Herod? What could that be? Now, I'm just going to assume, because I could be wrong here, but let's assume that it's a different kind of leaven, that it's not the same thing as the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. I think it's different also because Herod's like a whole different animal than those guys. Herod's not like the Pharisees and scribes. He's not like in this minutia obedience to God or something like that, right? Do you guys remember Herod? This is the guy, right, who had his stepdaughter danced seductively for him and his, his, um, his party guests and then made an obnoxious promise to her that resulted in him, decide, him having to cut the head off John the Baptist. Yeah, that guy. Not doesn't really sound like a Pharisee to me. This is like a whole different kind of, he's a worldly and ungodly man. That I think might be the connection with Herod. If it's a different leaven, it's the leaven of having status but being ungodly. It could be a warning against ungodly ambition or thinking that um, we should uh, respect position over godliness. This is a constant issue. A constant issue. We deal with it all the time. We have people who are in high positions all the time that are just very ungodly in our culture. Um, And I don't mean to feed the part where we're, we're, we're overly critical of people who are like, say, politicians. Well, as a culture, we're cruel to our politicians. Uh, we really are. Like, overly cruel. Like, mean. We're just jerks. Uh, 
even even when they have legitimate issues, we have legitimate issues with them. We just freak out and overreact, and we're becoming a bunch of cancerous people. I think <laughs> it's really toxic. We're becoming very toxic. The online community, angry, gripe and gossipy stuff about everybody. That's it's really unhealthy for us. But but um, but there's the flip side, which is that when that same person you're complaining about walks in the room, and you're like, "Oh, it's so great to meet you," or you know, and we just and we just flip over and become, or you have some really ungodly celebrity who's just horribly ungodly. They're just really famous, maybe even for doing horrible things, and they walk into a room, and everyone's like, "Respect, respect, respect." And I'm just like, I, I mean, I give you, I want to give you respect as a human, right? I'm not going to like look down on you, but I cannot respect the things that others are respecting. What are they respecting? That you're famous. So, but we can do this, right? We can, we can over, we can just basically, we're seeing through, through the wrong lens. We're seeing through the wrong lens. Herod was, had a party and who was there? The leading men of Galilee. Why? Because he's, he's this ungodly leader, but he's the leader. So they go and they respect him. And they come and they, I don't know, whatever their attitude towards him. There's like a sense in which as Christians, we should salute proper authority and give proper respect to proper authority, but not transfer that as approval to the ungodly behavior of those authorities. And that I feel like is our balance. I, I properly salute whether, whatever the president we've had throughout my whole life. I've always had reasons to have issues with the presidents, right? But I should properly salute the authority and the, and the role and the rank and acknowledge it and even walk in obedience as much as uh, my obedience to God will allow. But to think that their um, ungodliness is therefore okay, is that's, that's a danger. <clears throat> so what, what's going on with Herod? Um, I think it's it maybe is about conformity to the world, conformity to the world. He is outwardly wicked. He's outwardly worldly. Um, there may be a, a New Testament connection here. First Corinthians five eight talks about leaven in this regard. It says, "Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." And so it speaks of the leaven of malice and wickedness, that Herod was like this. He was like a malicious and wicked individual. He was just, just ungodly. So perhaps the leaven of the Pharisees is religion that is not pleasing to God. It's a self-righteous religion that covers up for huge areas of disobedience with small areas of obedience. Um, perhaps the leaven of Herod is this worldliness creeping into the church where we just become ungodly, where, where you know, What's, what's normal ungodliness in the world becomes normal ungodliness in the Christian life, and it's considered not that big of a deal because that's just the way we are. In both cases, they're both unrighteous but in different ways. This is why I think 1 Timothy 4.16 tells us, well, tells Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, but listen to the order. Uh, <clears throat> Paul is, is concerned that Timothy, he's a young pastor effectively, a young leader in the church, and he's concerned that he has like good instructions so that he can successfully obey God and bless the church. And this is one of the things that he says to Timothy that haunts me. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who you hear or who hear you. So he's told to pay attention to two things, his self and his teaching. I think our tendency is to pay attention to the second one, right? For, for say, pastors, my teaching. Why? Because when I get up and teach, you're all watching me. But paying attention to myself, 
when no one's even watching me, that takes integrity. What I do in the dark, what I do when no one's around, what I do when I'm not around any influences who might be evaluating what I'm saying or doing, thinking about it from Christian principles, you know, well, then I'm more in, more likely to, to be godly, if nothing else, because of peer pressure. But we're to take heed to ourselves and to our ministries or whatever God's called us to do. We tend to think about, I think sometimes, um, obeying God in our duties, but not in our person or character as much. And so this is just a good reminder for us. Go back to the character. You're going to find character flaws. Of course you're not perfect. You're not. So pay attention to that. Be aware of that. Be, be laying that back down at the altar of God. Be growing in some fashion. Be, even if, it's, even if it's just inch by inch and millimeter by millimeter, be growing in the Lord in those areas of your life. <clears throat> a lot of issues stem from this kind of stuff. Uh, I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 10.1. I probably don't quote Ecclesiastes enough. But Ecclesiastes 10.1, which says, Dead flies, it's always good to start a verse with the phrase, dead flies. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. I, I, I find the poetry of that really compelling, actually, personally. Um, so you may have this beautifully smelling perfume, but there's like some sort of dead bug in it. And so it becomes rancid. It's, it, you open it and it smells. This otherwise wonderful, pleasant thing was totally ruined by this one bad element. And so he relates it to our lives. So... A little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Maybe you're known for wisdom and honor. Maybe you try to walk in wisdom and honor. Yet there's these areas of foolishness that have just been allowed to fester in your life. The scary thing is we reap what we sow. I, I, I'm worried about that. And we ought to be. I think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That foolishness that we allow to carry through our lives, that little leaven can undo so much good and so much service to God in your life. So he says to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. But take heed to yourself. Watch yourself. Be careful with yourself. Because our ministry, our service to God, it flows from us. Like we're, we're the vessel through which this ministry happens and so the vessel must be clean. It's got to be clean. Now I'm gonna, I have to constantly be cleansed I have to constantly come back to the Lord and give him my dead flies, so to speak. <laughs> Lord, get this out of me, please, before it becomes worse, before it causes bigger problems and bigger issues in my life. But it's that constant place of humility and growing and openness and real introspection, looking at the honest issues of my life, trusting in the grace of God to meet me right there so that it's conviction but not condemnation, you know. But let me read to you this passage. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 26. This is about vessels. Uh, the term vessels in this passage is referring to not just your physical body, but, but you as a person. You're, you're the vessel God's filling and using for purposes, right? Um, <clears throat> so it says, nevertheless, 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Now to their culture, they would have understood this well. The earthenware vessels were like, you might have put unclean things in there that you would just throw the vessel away when you were done with it. But if you had like a gold vessel or something, you would only use that for special things, right? So you had vessels for like icky stuff and vessels for really nice stuff. That's the idea. 
Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth." And that they may come to their senses and escape this from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The bottom line I just want to say is this. I'm not going to teach verse by verse through the whole passage. I just want to like absorb it. Here's the idea. I want to present to God a vessel. I don't just want to do stuff for him. That maybe is the difference. One of the differences between the Pharisee and the non-Pharisee in this analogy. Lord, I want to be a vessel for your glory. I don't just want to do stuff for you. That's a different perspective. And this is relational. Lord, I want to be a vessel. Okay, let's, let's go on. Uh, here at the end of verse 18, Mark, back to Mark 8. Jesus says to them, do you not remember? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000? How many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? You know, the the discussion they just had, you could like feel the tension in the moment where he's like, do you not yet understand? And they're all just looking at him and he's looking at them. You know, you ever been, you ever had that teacher who just does that? That is like, do you get it? And you're like, I want to get it. You know, I'm struggling. I'm trying. And I, I think it was something they probably understood over time. Um, but let's just note this. Why did they miss the point? Because they were thinking about daily practical needs and Jesus was talking about spiritual truths. That's why they missed the point. And this might be why we're missing some of the points in our lives, right? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about today and the things I have to do today, get my schedule done. I got to get to work. I got to go here. I got to get home. Time to do some dishes because I can't eat off anything anymore. And you've, all these various things you have to do. But we're not thinking about the spiritual things um, there may be a lesson there is that we should be thinking more quickly about the spiritual things that are going on uh, than we do. Now, here's a side note. After all that, um, some people think that I'm working too hard to look for deep meaning in the Bible. Just read it, man. I just study and for hours and hours and you come and you try to bring all this stuff and just read it. Um, now, there is great value in just reading the scriptures immeasurable value or even just listening to them. I love the fact that we have Bible apps now that like read the Bible to you. Like a hundred years ago, like you would have had to like hire somebody to do this for you, right? Like, like it just reads the Bible to me. I think this is amazing and we should try to take advantage of it. It's a blessing. But statements like this sometimes uh, show us, um, show us something. When Jesus says to them, do you not yet understand? What's he doing? He's, he's the, if you read you know, his, his implication, what he's saying is, there's more to my words than what a casual reading is going to give you. You have to think about it. You have to study it. You have to ponder it. Do you not yet get it? Think about not just what I said, but think about the context. Remember, I fed the loaves. Think about how that applies. Think about everything else I said about the scribes and Pharisees. Now I'm giving it to you. Watch out for their leaven. And, and so we're having to ponder this through and think it through. The Bible, my point is, the Bible's meant to be studied. And, and Mark 
along with the other writers, intend for us to dig deep to puzzle it out. What does Jesus mean? Who is Jesus? It's important for for uh, people who miss Mark. They read Mark and they're like, well, where's the deity of Christ in Mark? And I was like, well, did you read it or did you study it? Right? You study it, you get the deity of Jesus in lots of places. You just casually read through it without pondering. I don't know what you'll get. You may or may not notice those things. This is the way that the book of Hebrews treats the Old Testament. It's like mining the Old Testament for these incredible gems of Christian truth. Uh, We get that in the book of Hebrews. It's how Paul decides he's going to prove that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. He's going to do this by showing us Abraham. Wasn't Abraham righteous by faith apart from works? And he goes to Genesis. Think about this. He goes to Genesis to prove the gospel of Jesus. It's meant to be thought about. It's meant to be studied. It's meant to be pondered. The Bible's meant to be studied, not just read, because it's genius, because it was inspired by the ultimate genius. The brilliance of Scripture, which is, I think, apparent to anyone who studies it in depth, is either due to the brilliance of a whole bunch of different authors working together, and think about how complicated that is, or it's due to the brilliance of one inspiring God who has given us his word to ponder and to think about, to meditate on, as the scripture says. But context is key. Context is key. And I'll mention really quick, we'll do a slight, a quick apologetic moment for tonight's study. And here it is. Um, it's one thing to say, you have to really puzzle out what Jesus is saying. It's a, it's a riddle to be discovered. It's easy, you could say that, but you could easily go way off the rails, right? Like you could then invent all kinds of crazy stuff. And, but my answer here is based on context. The context of the feeding, the context of Jesus' words to the disciples, the context of what he says about scribes and Pharisees, the context of leaven's use in scripture, it's all context giving us meaning. It's not coming from just me. But there are those who go out of the Bible. It's not about the context of the Bible. It's about the context of other things. So I I read um, uh, this week about some scholars who think that the book of Mark is giving us ancient or early Gnosticism in the life of Jesus. And they believe here that Peter, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, Peter is the messenger of a different God inferior to the Father called the Demiurge. This is Gnosticism. They believe that there's like this, this, this one ultimate God that is so far away from you, you can never contact him. And then there's these emanations of these other gods that come out from that God. Finally, you get to one that's really far from him. It's, it's, it's called the Demiurge. And that's the one that actually created the earth that we're living on. Right, and he's and he's kind of like not that great of a god, of a god, and you're and this is not this is not Judaism, this isn't Christianity, this isn't this is weird Gnosticism, and so what some people do instead of taking the Bible in its actual context is they find some weird context from the first century that doesn't apply to the Bible. Actually, this Gnosticism is like I don't know if you even find it in the first century; it's really second century stuff, and then they just try and slam it onto the scriptures. But these are scholars who do this. Some scholars, it's a minority, but there are, there are actual, they could be like, I have credentials, look at my PhD. And I, I just think you're rescued from this because you're actually studying the ancient book yourself. It was a big turn in scholarship recently when they realized, shockingly, that the New Testament is Jewish. Not Gnostic, right? It's not a Greek, it might be written in Greek, but it's not a work of Greek thinking. It's Jewish. And that context sets everything. I mean, you open Matthew and you're reading a genealogy, a Jewish genealogy. It was quoting the Old Testament scriptures all the way through. You read Mark and you have these 
subtle allusions to all varieties of passages throughout the Old Testament. This is not a Gnostic work. It's a Jewish book about a Jewish Messiah. There's no Gnosticism there. So, um, yes, we want context. We want to study the scripture, but we want to make sure that the context comes from the scripture and not go crazy with it. Okay, we're going to look at this miracle quickly that happens after this incident with the, um, the warning about the leaven because it relates. Mark 8, verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. That's interesting, huh? And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then he again laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. So there's a bunch of really interesting elements that are here. But one of the things that I, I puzzle on is, why here? Why is this blind man being you know, happening here in the middle of this section in Mark that doesn't seem to be about these kinds of miracles? Like earlier, he's already established Jesus performing miracles. Well, notice verse 23, he takes the blind man by the hand and he brings him out of the village, out of Bethsaida. Brings him out. He's not going to heal him there in the village. This is not normal for the work of Jesus. It does happen occasionally, but it's not like the, the normal thing. Come follow me. Let's leave these, these, these crowds. Um, it, it has happened, but boy, this seems, it seems to be even more extreme. He's leaving a whole village area. So this may have been to get away from those who were asking for signs insincerely, which is what we just dealt with last week. People insincerely show us a sign, but they don't really mean it. And so he's like, I'm not going to give them the time of day. And he takes them outside. Uh, the lesson is they get what they want. This is actually reinforced by verse 26, because in verse 26, after he heals him, he tells the guy, don't go back into the village, just go to your home. He apparently didn't live in Bethsaida. So he says, just go home. Bethsaida had plenty of miracles already. Bethsaida had plenty of miracles already, which is why he tells them, woe to you, Bethsaida. Right? Because if the miracles that have been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented by now. So this is, this is I think, judgment upon them. Um, so now it's on them. And I think the lesson here is, uh, perhaps, that before we ask for more evidence, we should stop and ask what evidence we've already received. This is something that little kids do really poorly, right? Um, I didn't know what to do. What did I tell you to do? Well, you told me you told me to do this. Did you do that? No, I didn't do that. But you didn't tell me anything after that. Well, you should have just done what I told you to do when I told you to do it without making me tell you to do it again. This is like the, you know, the battle that you have with, with kids. I think that this is the battle God has with us. He's like, I already showed you, but show me again. Why? I don't know. I just don't really want to think about what you already showed me. I just want more. I want more. I want something else. And that, I don't want to be flippant about it, but there are at least some people that are in that scenario. Okay, not everybody is, but some people are in that exact scenario. And to them, I think you need to stop and you go back and look at what God's already revealed to you. Um, so this healing, though, is pretty interesting. Um, let me dispel a misconception on it. Some people say, well, Jesus, he, he couldn't heal the man completely. Like, he tried. He healed him. And he sees trees walking around. Or, or even worse, some people think he saw trees. Like he opens his eyes and he sees trees like ints, you know, the ints are marching, <laughs> burarum, you know, and they're going around doing their thing. Uh, no, really what we're seeing is the man's vision is fuzzy and whether he was born blind or not, I don't know. But what he sees is he sees these fuzzy images and he sees them moving around. And so he, he, he describes what he sees. I, I see men, it, it, they're like trees, like these nondescript big objects walking around. That's what he says about the people. Uh, so he had partial vision. He didn't think that men were trees. 
Um, also, Jesus had already healed a blind man using saliva, and we talked about that in detail, so I'm not going to get into it. So the question here is, why is this one here? Why is this healing miracle here? What's the message? Because Mark has a message in the healings, right? What's the message in this one? Um, now, I know that a repeat of miracle can have additional teaching to it. When he he casts out, Jesus casts out demons in a Jewish context, and he casts out demons in a Gentile context. Jesus feeds the 5,000 in a Jewish context. He feeds the, the 4,000 in a Gentile context. So repeat a miracle, but with different meaning. So one had like a mosaic connection. The other one had more of a messianic savior of the world connection. But the context of this miracle is different. And here's where I think we get maybe some subtle meaning that is in the text here that Jesus wants us to have, which is this. He just rebuked the disciples because they were not seeing. He goes, having eyes, do you not see? Right? That's what he says to them after he says, watch out for the leaven. He's like, you still don't get it. You still can't see. You still can't see. He just rebuked them. Verse 17, do you not see or yet understand? So I think that the healing of the blind man has some parallels in what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's opening their eyes to understand who the Messiah really is and what he's really going to do. Here's some of the parallels. It's gradual. The man was not healed right away. This is the most striking thing about the guy, right? He was healed gradually. Well, the disciples, having total misconceptions of who the Messiah was going to be, they see Jesus, he's the Messiah, but they don't really understand what he's about. Even during his ministry, they just still don't get it. He's slowly opening their eyes to understand better what his real mission is, that it involves his death and his resurrection. And guess what he's about to announce for the first time? His death and resurrection. So they're like the blind man who their eyes have been open, but they see Jesus like a tree walking around. You know, like I see him, but I don't really get what I'm looking at. So I think there's a parallel here to their understanding of Christ. It will become fully, you know, um, they'll, they'll see him clearly after his death and resurrection, they'll fully get it. So it's the gradual nature. Um, now, some would say, well, Jesus, well, he was just failing. Jesus raised the dead, right? He raised the dead. Like, he's not failing. It's not like, oh, man, I raised the dead. I, I, I healed people from a distance with a word. But, you know, this guy, I just really couldn't handle it. It was just too challenging. I think, I think Jesus is fully in control of exactly how long this healing takes place. It's meant to teach us stuff. And so we see this gradual healing and a parallel with the disciples gradually understanding the Messiah. Right after this healing, Jesus then announces his death and resurrection. They still don't get it, right? Peter's going to be like, no, 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 because he still doesn't get it. He sees it, but he doesn't get it. I think there's a parallel there. He announces it multiple times, but they still don't get it until afterwards. It's like they're gradually gaining understanding of who the Messiah is. So they only see Jesus halfway, I think is the point. And I think um, uh, to abruptly come to a stop, because <laughs> this is the end of my notes. Um, the, uh, the point is, uh, maybe application for us, is while you see the truth of Christ and the truth of Christianity, there may yet be lots of things you don't fully understand. There may be plenty of stuff about God and his love about Jesus, whether it's about theology or just about how to take the heart of Christ and put it into your life, there may be plenty of things like that that you still just really haven't wrapped your head around. Me too. And it's okay to be like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm like that. Maybe I get it better than the disciples did at this point, but maybe there's still plenty I'm still learning about Christ. Plenty I'm still learning about the spiritual truths, like watching out for the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees and how to put that in my life. Giving, making uh, my life into the vessel that would be used for God's glory that I'm still sort of just trying to wrap my head around, still trying to learn, still trying to grow in. So I think the lesson for us is, probably would have helped the disciples, is where if they would have just said, okay, 
we only halfway get what you're talking about, Jesus. So we're going to pay really careful attention and we're going to be very reflective and we're going to try and grow and try and learn and try and be humble and try and be good disciples. And I think that might be the application for us today. Be fully offered good disciples who are humble, who don't think they know everything, but they hold on to what they know and they keep seeking for better vision of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer. Give us better vision of you, God. Where we don't get it, where, where perhaps we've had um, anger, malice, bitterness, pride um, be part of our lives, show us, please, God. Where we've had uh, bad theology, incorrect beliefs mixed in with our correct beliefs about Christ, show us that, Lord, please. Where we've just thought more about the appearance of godliness than actual godliness, show us that, Lord. Where we've adopted worldliness in any fashion, Show us that, Lord. Open our eyes more and more, Jesus, we pray. We ask that you would be glorified in us, that we'd be vessels that are living for you, Lord, for your pleasure and for your glory, because you are worthy, God. You are worthy of all that we are and all that we can do. May your name be exalted in our lives, and may our lives be um, reflective of the true work of your Holy Spirit, Lord. That we would be not only outwardly with the appearance of of godliness or anything like that, but rather we would just flow. Godliness would flow from our hearts and our lives with love towards you and love and service towards our fellow man. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.